Hi, I'm Sam Simon, and I'm the grandpa, and I always think deep. Hi, I'm Emily Simon. I'm the granddaughter, and I'm always wondering, in every conversation we have, why does grandpa always think deep? Hi, Grandpa. Hey, Emily. How's it going? Oh, I'm so busy. I can't believe it. You know, I'm writing a new play, and I had a first reading. And oh, I'm, that's exciting. I'm on boards of directors, and I just got off a of board of directors of a group called Y. It's the letter Y, I love Yiddish. And oh. it's actually a well-known Jewish actor, Avi Hoffman, is nonprofit. I, I don't know him. Um, it, I hate to break it to you. <laughs> I, he might be well known, but not to me, unfortunately. Yeah, well, he is in, in he, but he lives in Florida and he loved the actual dance, my play, and he's interviewed me. And so, what me. is he in if he's such a well known actor? Well, you know, I would have to go on to say all of them. He's been in movies, but it is Yiddish theater. So oh, really? German, Yiddish theater. Generally popular theater. And they're going to actually have me come down to the base in Florida to do my performative author talk, probably at the end of April or maybe May. And they've got a new program, which really resonates with me, is using art and theater to combat anti-Semitism. That's important. So you said it's a Yiddish theater. Did that mean that you have to do your play in Yiddish? No, no. It's Their larger mission is just Jewish theater, but his work is primarily Yiddish theater. Interesting. Very interesting thing to be doing in the 21st century. Yeah, well, that's why he's doing it. <laughs> interesting. Uh, I could pull up the agenda that he had listed all the things he'd been doing in some of the movies. But the one thing, and you can help him right here in live podcast world. <laughs> if you go onto YouTube and go to Why I Love Yiddish, find his and subscribe. You'll help them raise money. I'll send you the link later. But anyway, what have you been doing? What have I been up to? Yeah. Well. Hmm. You said you had an idea for today. How about that? I do. It's not really related to what I've been doing. So, okay. Well, one of the things, one of the many things I'm doing, I've also been very busy. So one of the many things I've been doing is Hillel has a Jewish learning fellowship. It's kind of like once a week we meet, we talk about like they say life's big questions and we use like kind of Jewish texts to answer it. So I've been doing that. And actually, one of the things that we talked about, you've transitioned us very nicely into the topic for today, um, because <laughs> one of our recent topics was, well, they say it's like, how big is your story? Really, it's about your story, how you fit into the story of your family, how important do you think the story of your family is, where do you fit into it, and what do you kind of owe your ancestors, which is a very big topic. So I wanted to kind of start us out with... One of the sources that we read was from Glickel of Hamelin. It was a memoir of hers. She lived from 1691 to 1719. And actually, the text was just the introduction, but I feel like there was a kind of a lot packed into it. So I'll read it out loud. It goes like this. It says, my dear children, I write this for you in case your dear children or grandchildren come to see you one of these days, knowing nothing of their family. For this reason, I have set this down for you here in brief so that you might know what kind of people you come from. So I felt like there was a lot to unpack there. Or just that sentence, right? Just that sentence. Two sentences. Yeah. Kind of blew over the period in the first one. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that comes with, there's a lot of things that pop up there. So I guess like starting from the beginning, my dear children, I know 
I write this for you in case your dear children or grandchildren come to you one of these days knowing nothing of their family. So I, I thought that was really interesting because it kind of implies that like the obligation to tell the story of the family, it implies that you don't have to tell the story of your parents, right? That you don't have to pass things down from generation to generation, that it's the obligation of the person living now to record their story and then have it so that future generations may read it and that it doesn't have to be passed down from generation to generation. So what do you think about that? So I want to clarify what you, I think you're saying. You heard in that mm -hmm. that it is not their children. Why do you think it implies that it's not, you said it's not your obligation. So help me clarify what you understood. Whose mm -hmm. obligation is it and whose obligation is it not? But by doing this, he was like relieving somebody else of their obligation. It was a woman. She, she's saying basically, in case your children or grandchildren come to you one of these days knowing nothing of their family. So this implies that the author here, Glycol, Glycol, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it, is saying to her children that they don't have to talk to their children or their grandchildren about their mother, right? Because if they know um, nothing of their family, that means that the parents didn't tell them anything about the family. Well, so I heard it in a couple of different contexts. It's interesting. I heard it in a couple of different contexts. Okay. One was in the time of, you said it was in the 1600s. Late 1600s, early 1700s. So there was very little writing and there was very little, uh, there was obviously no books. Well, not obviously, but. There were some books, but books, they were but hard be, to get a hold of. But even today, there's not that many books about our, your unique family, though there are records of families. They're increasingly access to census data, so you would know where they lived, and organizations now have a list of members. In the 1600s, not so clear, and I don't think so many. I doubt if there was significant literacy, percentage-wise. So I, I thought of that when I heard it initially. And in particular, that if it weren't passed down, wasn't told by each generation of what they know of their past, then the next generations wouldn't know nothing. So I don't think it presumed that anybody else wouldn't do it, but it was to tell her daughter, it was to her daughter. Uh, her children. To her children. So that if each generation did that and added to what they were given, you skip one and you may skip everything. So there's so many assumptions around that. I heard it as, for example, I wish my grandparents had written something like that. Mm -hmm. They hadn't. They didn't. Trying to put together their story, their lifetime, you know, all for them has been extensive. And I still don't think we know it. Because mm -hmm. they never wrote it down. They, well, they, they never, didn't tell you. Well, even if they told us, if it's not written down... Somebody has to write it down. I mean, we had oral Torah. We had oral, their oral traditions. Mm -hmm. But you know the game telephone? Yeah, they get right. screwed up. I mean, there are, I think there are definitely cultures in the world where like they have oral tradition, but it's like in a very different way where they have someone who's like, like oral traditions that are passed down intentionally. Like you have to like memorize everything and like say it a certain way. Does this make sense? I don't know if there are, but I could imagine that. Yeah, that they have to like their cultures where they have to memorize certain songs or dances that tell the story in a certain way. That like it's each generation is like very trained to like do this this exact way. So I'm there not, are oral traditions that are like that, from what I've heard. Well, there may be, 
but that might say, well, this was the kind of music in the 20s. I'm taking origin. This was the kind of music in the, but that's not specific to the family. Right. You know, so I know only the name of my great grandfather on my father's side. Mm -hmm. And that was happened to be Marcus Simon. And we found that by accident. And that was because my great grandmother is buried in a cemetery. You know, cemeteries tell some of these stories. They certainly but, do. But to have it written down, and particularly by someone, you know, if my great-grandfather Marcus had written something down, well, I'm going to give you an example. So my grandfather on my mother's side, Harry Offman, mm-hmm. he died 11 years before I was born. Harry Offman, yeah, okay. Never heard his voice until someone found a newspaper article in which he was quoted on his 50th wedding anniversary. And I don't remember it. I could go find it. And it was a philosophy of life, but it was just one sentence. And I got, what struck me by it is I got to hear Grandpa Alpin, my mother's father's voice, not in his tone, but something he actually said. Mm -hmm. And I think those things are so valuable. We take them for granted today. But in the 1600s, wow. I don't know if they would be quoting people. They might. But they certainly, If I would hope they would quote themselves. So that three generations and four generations, and I'm only talking two generations up. My great-grandfather I never heard. But if my father talked about his great-grandfather and on and on, we would be hearing and seeing things. I would love to do that. Anyway, that was that's my first sort of reaction to that, that it's a huge gift. It's a gift. I agree. I think it is a gift. And at the same time, if this stuff isn't left to you, how much time do you think is appropriate to spend sort of almost tracking it down? Because at some point, I think I think it's important to take care of the people who we have living in the world right now, make sure that everyone who's alive right now could live a good life, whatever that looks like to them, can live a life of dignity. And there's so many people who are deprived of that for whatever reason. Should we not try to make the world a better place than the here and now? Should we devote our time and energy to doing that instead of to tracking down the people of the past? I guess, like, where is the balance between those two things? I feel like that's something I kind of struggle with because it would be fun to, like, just go back and try to find stuff about my ancestors. But there's stuff that needs to happen right here, right now for the real people who are still alive. And not that they're not real people, for the people who are still alive. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? I don't think we live in an either or world. Mm-hmm. And your question makes it sounds that way. Interesting. I didn't mean it, but no, but it does. Mm-hmm. Even even in slightly, and there's a, there's also another thing about it, that question. So there's a bit of an either or. Either we pay attention, and is it that any second I spent on something else, right? They're not fungible. So if I've spent, I'm 77. Since I was 22, there have been 400 and 38,000 hours. Oh, wow. So out of 438, well, I guess I have to subtract sleeping. You know, (laughs) out of all that time, how many hours might be I allowed to document my family history? I think the more I think about it, the more I think you're right. We can't devote all of our time and energy to doing one thing, even if that thing is like saving the world. Saving the world is a good thing, by the way. Yeah. Environmental saving the risk so maybe i could almost like we as humans just can't devote ourselves to one thing all the time and i think there's always you can always 
have multiple priorities. But what is, I think it begs the question is what is the value of the history? Right. So that if that becomes to some degree the question, is anything we do unnecessary or wasted time? Yes. And, (laughs) you know, simple pleasures, one might think, are wasted time. And the human experience might require simple pleasures. You know, what do I mean by that? Sitting by myself and listening to a record. You know, playing a game. I'm I'm going to old fashioned thing. Getting my phone and playing a like a game. Yeah, or Grandpa does Wordle. How many hours today are wasted on Wordle or words with friends? How can we be wasting our time on those small? I don't. You know, to be a full human, I think we have to do a lot of things in sort of odd ways. But but that's almost a trivial answer to a deeper question. And what is knowing our own family history? Mm-hmm. Tell us what we might be responsible for. Ah, I like where this is going. <laughs> what do we owe? What do we owe? That's a big question. If anything, are we... So the Latin phrase, I think, is, oh, this is not right. I wanted to use sua sponte, but I don't think that's right. Are we something brand new? Are we each, like, new and we only are what we will do. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that's also true. Mm-hmm. I think I've said this before, but you know, the answer to your question for me, and this is not the first time I've said this, I've said this in you know various groups and when it's talked about who are you, what's your purpose? Mm-hmm. It begs that question, I think, you know, what's your purpose? And I say, I'm a chain in the history of my family. My job in life is to link the present and future to the past of who we are and have been. Because to me, there's meaning in that. That's really beautiful. I think that I really like the way you phrase that. Sometimes I feel like it can feel like a binary. Like, am I going to do the things that are the things that I feel obligated to do to respect my ancestors or am I going to do new things shiny things things no one else in my family has done before am I going to forge a new path ahead and disregard my past and just do whatever I want to do but the way you phrase that it's not a binary it's not a choice like that you're a link in a chain you take the past and yet you're linking a chain and the chain is constantly I'm imagining like a rope Right. You know, you know those ropes are like those yarns that like have like all these different colors swirling around in them and they gradually fade into different colors and they're swirling and there's different colors in them and they're all fading into one each other and fading out of each other. That's what I'm imagining more than a chain, actually. It's more a rope of changing colors and colors change and they fade out and some new ones come in and some new strands of color are maintained throughout, but it's all part of the same rope and it's not binary at all. Yes. Yes. I like the strength of the chain metaphor, but yeah. rope would be the same. You know, the colorful rope. Well, the colorful rope. And it, look, history changes, life changes. And we're not obligated to, you know, I have no idea the bad things my ancestors may have done. Yeah. I, you know, it, it tends to know more of the struggles. And, you know, I guess it's who I am. So I, I don't have good explanations as to why. But clearly, the Jewish tradition, their own history, what they, what 
as I understand both, I'm just trying to confirm this in my mind, both sides of my parents' families, for sure. You know, they all came out of Europe. They all left in, I think some left just in times of economic hardship, Mm -hmm. not necessarily anti-Semitism. Others left in times of when it did not feel safe, carrying with them, you know, because but for them, I wouldn't be here, right? Right. But for me, you wouldn't be here, young lady. (laughs) Yep. You got to do everything I tell you. No, I'm just teasing you. (laughs) You know, the, the one thing that your question makes me think about, and it's not so foreign, though I don't, doesn't speak to me, is, you know, at some point, maybe 13, just metaphorically, that when you become an adult, somebody could just cut all changes, go do what they think is right and feel good. And, you know, it's agency. And just because... Because you, you know, can. You know, why, why shouldn't I just do what I think is right? Right. I don't know that I can say... you. Yeah, I'm hesitant to say don't do that because one could live meaningful lives that way, I guess. It just seems to isolate as if you're just a dog. I think Judaism is more about that and that the obligation is because we think it's all about this life. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm named after Sam Offman. So who was he and how do I honor his name? Because I carry his name and my grandparents lost a 27-year-old son, their only son, and I carry his name. Am I obligated? He didn't do anything for me, per se, but I don't know. I feel like I want to, it gives me added reason to want to do important and valuable things. Maybe it shouldn't be the reason. Maybe it's because, you know, children don't have enough to eat in China. You know, I say that, that might make some people laugh. Because when we sat at dinner tables and wouldn't clean our plate, our parents would tell us, clean your plate, there's children starving in Europe or China. And that was like a good reason to make us feel guilty and clean our plates. So do we do it for that or because it's right or because we want to be healthy? I do think there's an obligation to history. I do think families that we enter the world on the shoulders of those who came before us. And we want to make it the best world as possible, not just in the name of our families, but in the name of everybody who came before us. That's so beautiful. Now, it could be idealistic. It could be, some people could say it's BS. Did people answer that out loud in your class? Oh, yeah. No, we talked about it. Any contrary views? It wasn't contrary. Again, it wasn't really a binary. It was more of a spectrum. Yeah. A spectrum of feeling of obligation No one denied the existence of the obligation in our class, but no one denied the existence of obligation, but there was a spectrum of different ways to fulfill that obligation or the extent to which that obligation should be fulfilled. Again, now that you kind of mentioned the whole metaphor of the chain or the rope or whatever, I kind of feel like it's not really a matter of extent. I don't know. It's still kind of a matter of extent. It's a matter. No, it's not. Never mind. Well, it's not. So it's a balance. It's a balance between the the new and the old, and the actually, I, I don't, I don't know. I need more time to think about it. Well, I, I, I guess there are different degrees of obligation, in my view. Right. For example, I just feel like it's more like how much of the old are you going to keep, and how much newer you're going to introduce. Are you going to keep everything the exact same color as the rope? 
that was directly before you? Are you going to try to introduce some old colors? Do you bring in something new? Do you keep some old colors and weave them in with the new colors? So, how do you want to do it? Right? So, it's so not a matter of if; well, it's a matter of how. Well, well, and and, again, and it's complicated though. It's a, so let's presume my father was a cobbler and had a shoe shop, and he was the sixth generation of cobblers, and he was also always an active member of a Orthodox synagogue and was very Orthodox. And now I'm the child. Do I have to be a cobbler? Do I have to be Orthodox? Is that how I have to respect? Am I bound to that in a sense? Is it, it, What are you bound to and what are you not? What do you choose to take and what do you choose to leave? And what, what for you? Yeah, and well, and then, but what is my sense? And part of that, I think we value today very greatly free will, or what I would call agency. Yeah. And we have a privilege of that. Again, we are in a society in a time where if we said, no, I don't want to be a cobbler, I like being a secretary. Well, I don't know if there were secretaries then, but if you're going out meant that this shoe business went away and that other members of the family that relied on it were going to be put into poverty, that would be a very selfish thing to do. On the other hand, today, it's not, it's rarely like that. You know, we, I think, value on encouraging people to find their their own unique energy and talent. And the values in, in that are to pursue that so that you yeah. become a wholer human being and it takes time eventually discovering. And sometimes there'll be more than one thing I think about myself. Although, the, so I, I suspect these conversations make us all think about ourselves a bit. I've always felt this obligation to family that I'm obligated. But I also had an energy that nobody else in the family that I can tell has had. And that's just social justice energy. It sounds like that part of my gene may be something you may be inheriting, <laughs> listening to you a little bit. Certainly your dad feels like, but I see injustice. I see something wrong. And I'm reminded that at 14 years old, against my parents' wish, I went down to city council and spoke to them and lectured them on how terrible it was they passed the law. And the law was just setting a curfew for 17-year-olds because I saw them, the city, using that to discriminate against Hispanic kids in the community. They weren't enforcing it in my neighborhood. They were enforcing it elsewhere. And I've been doing that, you know, I, I caused that causing trouble, good trouble, most of my life in my career. But I don't know if I learned that from my family or not. Other things were very important to them, supporting the community, being valuing family and taking care of each other. If I were to think back on what was it that my family and grandparents did was taking care of family. But it was an era where having food on the table for many people was a struggle. I don't know. We never we didn't grow up in an elite or a highly wealthy environment. The family was lower middle class. There was always food on the table, but everybody worked and everybody contributed. There were some members who needed help and so eras and time change the expectations. Well, so interesting. You say you don't know where you got this whole passion for social justice. I could argue that it's the same passion that your parents had for taking care of their family. 
that you've just expanded the definition of family to be everybody. It's the same idea of taking care of each other, but you expand who it is that you care about taking care of. Well, I guess I see what they did and what I do is, so is it different sides of a cube? I don't want to say a coin. It's not a head or tails. You know, there are different facets of, I don't know if they wanted justice for us. They certainly wanted us to behave correctly. They wanted us to be prominent in the community, you know, where if anything, certainly in the synagogue and, you know, being leaders there. So maybe that was it. I think what it was. What? Was you took some of the things they gave you, this idea of taking care of people, making sure that everybody's got enough and everyone's all right. The idea of being a prominent leader in the community, you combine them together and you put in something that was your own. I feel like that's like the rope. That's you take some of the old colors and you throw in something new that's your own. You know, I like to say it found me. I didn't like, I'm going to go work for Ralph Nader. I think growing up, and you can tell me this, when I was growing up, I was confused all the time. (laughs) What's right? What do I want to do? No, I think your dad was just like that. And I don't know your mom that well, you know, as he grew up. And he fell into some of the same thing. But I guess that's also human nature, exploring and testing. I don't know what it was like to do that in the 1600s. But I think at some point in life, saying, here's your story. You are, and your children and their children will be the legacy of this history. And that there is something in that history that you may want to pay homage to and to appreciate. I don't know. It it is an interesting question because it can also be used as like a prison, if you will. Here's the box you belong in, that you're belonging in, and I'm going to write it down to make sure you stay in that box. If it's done in love and if it's honest and energetic, in a sense, yeah, yeah, there's Uncle Joe and... He went out and fought Alexander the Great. (laughs) That is an interesting question. The tension of being bound by something supposed to be being energized and motivated with a sense of obligation to that same thing. There are tensions in that. I guess there must be philosophers who have written about this. (laughs) I'm sure. No, it's interesting. And, but, you know, think about other things too. Like, you talk about this in the context of a family that has loved and supported you and that you were actually raised by. But what about people who weren't really truly raised by their family or their parents who were neglected or abused? Do they have any obligation to that family, to those people? You remind me of the summer we had a, our synagogue had a Lamoud. A what? Uh, Lamoud, a series of studying of Talmud. How do you spell that? L-I-M-M-U-D, I believe. But that's... Wow, interesting. Okay. I've never heard of this. But it was just a study period over topics. And they, they were studying these sort of things. So one was the obligation to honor your parents. And so what is that obligation? And what are the limits of it? Mm-hmm. And the issue was, well, what if you're in an abusive situation? And it presumes an older person and they have parents and or an adult who's also an adult, but they're they're in a position where their parents are are assuming them. Do you have to stay and take it? Do you have to stay in you have to stay in touch with them? Do you have to continue to be abused or do you cut up? 
And it, it says you have to make sure they're cared for, but you may leave. That it is ethical to leave the environment, take yourself out of that, but that does not relieve your obligation to see that their basic needs are cared for. You can't just walk away and say, well, if they starve to death, so what? You have to make sure that they are there. Why is that? Because we are obliged to honor our mother and father. And why is that? Because it's in the Ten Commandments. Already. Well, no, it's an interesting... (laughs) It's an interesting question. Why are we obliged to do anything? Well, I think also, interestingly, I've been thinking about this randomly recently. Does existence of social services mean that like government-provided social security make it easier for people to abandon their parents and say, well, I can just abandon you because I know that the government will like make sure you don't literally starve to death. You will be put in public housing. And so I can just like abandon you because the government will take care of you or make sure you don't die. What do you as long as I pay taxes, then that could be considered making sure my parents don't die. These would be good questions for a lot of Jewish study and perke vote, you know, justice. Mm-hmm. I suspect that an argument can be made that one could, if need be, rely on that. Not like pay product. your taxes. Well, no, well, it's not a justification to walk away from my own purpose. So, th- see, this, you know, if, well, man, I want every penny I can get it. And I want to be able to send my kids to Harvard. And the only way to do that is if I don't support my parents. Well, if that's I, not what I meant. What I meant is that as someone like a parent who like horrifically abused you, you don't want to have contact with them anymore. So you can say, I'm not going to interact with you, but I'll pay my taxes. And then I will know that the parent is still alive because I'm paying my taxes to support the existence of the government. And I will advocate for the existence of public housing and for social security. But it has beyond be that, I will not directly have contact with my parent, but still ensure that they're alive in that way. Does that make sense? I understand it. And I think in the extreme, the answer to that is no, that's not enough. That's not enough in Jewish ethical values. Okay. In the extreme that I'm hearing it, which it would be that we feel abused. Maybe we really were. We have the right to walk away and we use as an excuse of not ever being back in communication. The imagination that they're able to take care of themselves, at least sufficiently through government programs. I would say that at the minimum, you would have to know that that's true and that you would have to take action to make sure that they are safe, even if they have abused you, even if they have hurt you, and at least in Jewish values. Now, I mean, I go to a point, no, that's, I, I don't think you have a right to walk away, you know, and there's a lot of people, there are a lot of parents, there's a lot, I hate to go to extremes, and I think it's even, it's very hard, but you know, there are parents say I know, and siblings don't talk to each other. And I would think that that's not a good thing. And that would not be whatever the wrong one did to the other, that their failure to talk with is appropriate behavior. I think it demonstrates ego and, and bruised ego. And even if something bad happened to me, I don't think I have a right and I think the fact that there are governments and programs just becomes an excuse to do things for myself. So in Jewish ethics, we go to the thing called Musar, you know, the study of Jewish ethics, or ego. And ego is a form of, I'm only concerned what makes me richer, feel better, good for me, and whatever I think is right. So, and if they don't, too bad for them. You know, this world is filled with that, unfortunately. We hear it every day in American politics, and it's a shame. And the demonization of others. 
you may feel bad and something may have hurt. You know, and it's easy to say I've never been hurt in that way um, mm -hmm. by certainly a family member. I don't know that we're required to forgive nor forget, but we do have obligations. And what do you think about that answer? I mean, for a lot of people, keeping an open line of communication basically means keeping an open line of continual abuse. Abuse is not something often that lives in the past, but that continues into the present. And do by keep that line of communication open by continuing to allow yourself to be abused? Or do you cut it off? So give me an example. I don't know. I'll just like read Carolyn Hax's column or something and find something. <laughs> Who is that? A columnist at the Washington Post where people write to like an advice columnist. So every, every time I call my parent, even though I'm an adult, they tell me things I don't like and make me feel bad because it reminds me of how really bad when I was under their control. Yeah, basically. Slap me. I would hope that the adults grow out of that. But some people never do. And it's like, damn, what do you do? Well, then, you, I mean, if they don't, they don't. I mean, I can't. The only way we have to affect or change others is if we're in an environment that allows us to support and model different behaviors. Often the abuse is a sign of some deeper problem. So how do you get them help? I don't know. You know, it You can't legally do that. <laughs> you can't legally force another adult to get help. No, 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 no. I'm not well, that's not true. They don't want it. Well if they're like as long as they're competent, as long as they're mentally as long as they're mentally competent, right. On the other hand, you can try to be a force that brings into the life things that might make them better. And it's not always going to work. I don't want to be, I don't want to minimize terrible things of abuse. Have you been in touch with people in, in your cohorts and people you know who feel that they're coming from very abusive circumstance? No, not very. It's talked about a bit? No, a bit. What do you mean? I don't know. I'm I'm just curious whether this thought I'm hearing from you stems from No, it stems from me reading like advice columns because on like the New York Times and the Washington Post because that's how I procrastinate on my work. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you'll be an advice columnist one day. Who knows? I don't think so. I think you have to be a psychology major for that. Oh. Or psych is hard. Well, maybe you'll be a rabbi or a Jewish educator. You could still learn from that. Oops, grandpa's <laughs> <laughs> there goes grandpa again <laughs> oh well i don't feel like i've helped you out at all <laughs> no we totally did i loved like your analogy of the chain and the idea that it's not a binary and there are so many ways that you... because the idea of the chain fundamentally implies that you're not bound to the past that you're constantly that while you are still connected to the past you're not bound by it instead you're forging a new direction maybe you could like move your like of the chain the chain doesn't have to go in a straight line. Chain can go in zigzag. Right. You can move your chain to the left or to the right or fold it in some funky oh, way. And then you can move the family in a new direction. And you can still be connected to the to the past, though, to the that you don't have to go and keep the chain going in a straight line if it ever was. And I like the rope take. It could be a rope and and the fading changing and adapting colors is also a beautiful option or way to describe the same thing. Yeah, no, that was very nice. So we we built something nice here, Emily. I think we did. I like yeah. this metaphor. I think I'm going to title this The Chain in the Rope. Chain in the Rope. <laughs> I like it. I like it. We can have a colorful chain. The chain have to be metal. I like the rope, though. Rope is better. Yeah, the rope, rope is better for the colors, but then also the chain. chains are cool, too. 
Yeah, let's see. I think maybe we can skin the heaven and say, what are we looking forward to or not? I think we each have something that's similar but different. I understand you're going to lose part of your mouth sometime soon. Oh, that's fun. Oh, yeah. That's how I'm spending spring break. Yeah, I'm getting my wisdom teeth out. It's actually like less stressful than having to like make plans for spring break with people. So it kind of just rids me of having to do that, which is very, actually very nice. And I got to go to New Zealand because really we had the consultation for it over Thanksgiving break. And then they were like, hmm, we need to do this. And we're like, well, I'm going to New Zealand for the winter. And then spring break is happening. Spring break is the next time. And I was like, well, I'd rather go to New Zealand for a month than like Miami for a week. So, (laughs) Well, or what would you rather do? Go to Miami for a week or have your wisdom teeth out? Well, that's not an option. (laughs) Well, I'm going to have my cataracts removed which means why does that just make you blind um, no i'm having new lenses put in you're gonna get new eyes new eye well they're still gonna be the same color i think i better check your robot eyes no they take out the old lens and they put in a new lens they said i will from now on i only need glasses for you know reading glasses non-prescription and i've been Uh, using for distance since i was in my 20s maybe even well that's exciting yeah, well, I don't know that they tell you uh, they're going to use lasers and and I have my eyes remeasured this morning. But well, that's exciting. Let me know how that goes. When are you back for your? your I don't even know. I don't know. I'm just like going to go home the day they tell me to go home. <laughs> like, what, what even? All right. Well, we'll check out how we feel on our next next installment. Next installment. New eyes and new teeth. All right. <laughs> see you next week. All right.